This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the moral logic of the pro-life movement. In November, the voters of Mississippi voted down a human personhood amendment by a 58% majority. Similar efforts have failed in other states as well. This amendment was a frontal assault on the legal and moral logic of that 1973 Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade. Associate Justice Harry Blackman in 1973 wrote the majority opinion for the United States Supreme Court in that case. Recently, theologian Albert Moeller summarized that opinion. It effectively declares an unborn child in the first three months of a woman's pregnancy to be of no moral or legal consequence. Within the second trimester, there is the recognition of potential personhood. Within the last trimester, the state may intervene with restrictions on abortion, but with clear allowances for stated reasons of the woman's health, which could include mental health. The Human Personhood Amendment, recently defeated in Mississippi, contained the ethical foundation of the pro-life movement, namely that life begins at conception. That amendment rejected the claim of some in the medical community that conception is the successful implantation of the fertilized egg in the uterine wall. The ethical status and value of the fertilized egg is the same, no matter where the egg is located. Further, either legally or morally, it is arbitrary to identify a moment along the line of the development from fertilization to live birth when personhood is understood to be achieved. Unless the unborn child is recognized as a person at every point in its development, we are just negotiating our own arbitrary definition of human personhood and human life. Indeed, as a leading medical textbook on human embryology argues, human development begins at fertilization the process during which a male sperm unites with the female egg to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. A zygote is defined as the beginning of a new human being. Although most developmental changes occur during the embryonic and fetal periods, some important changes occur during the latter periods of development as well. Infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Although it is customary to divide human development into prenatal, before birth, and postnatal, after birth periods, birth is merely a dramatic event during the development resulting in a change in its environment. Development does not stop at birth. That's a long quotation from the Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology. The theologian Albert Moeller captures the seriousness of the defeat of that amendment in Mississippi. Voters overwhelmingly voted down a statement that declared personhood for every human being from the moment of fertilization onward. 
The bitter lesson of Mississippi's defeat of the Human Personhood Amendment is this. When it comes to moral reasoning concerning the unborn child, far too many just adopt Harry Blackman's, Blackman's, excuse me, Harry Blackman's moral framework and want to tweak it. Many in the pro-life movement want to shift the lines of moral judgment, but not repudiate Blackman's deadly logic. We may think we are pro-life, Moeller goes on, but if we do not affirm the personhood of every human being at every point of development, as that textbook quote I used just showed, we are not really so pro-life as we think. Moeller is pushing our thinking and our logic to the appropriate biblical end. We must see life beginning at conception, not any other stage. So lest we forget the basis for this true pro-life position, let me offer a refresher on what the Bible says about life in the womb. Exodus 21, verses 22 through 24. Whatever these difficult verses exactly mean, God views life in the womb as of great value because that verse says whether there's an accident or whether it's intentional, to cause a woman to miscarriage demands accountability on the part of the one who caused it. The law of Israel did not treat the fetus frivolously. Isaiah 49 refers to Messiah. God called him for his mission as Messiah from the womb. That verse says prophetically. Jeremiah 1.5 and Luke 1.15, as with Isaiah speaking of Messiah, God viewed Jeremiah and John the Baptist from the womb as of infinite value. He even filled John with the Holy Spirit while he was in Elizabeth's womb. But no other passage deals with the question of life in the womb so powerfully and so conclusively as Psalm 139. In this wonderful psalm, David reviews four phenomenal attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his holiness. In reviewing God's omnipotence, David reviews God's power in creating life, which he compares to God weaving him in his mother's womb. He goes on and says, God made my frame his skeleton. And then in verse 16, David writes, of God, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. Undoubtedly and indisputably, David is referring to the embryo. If correct, then the divine perspective on life is that it begins at conception. So awesome is God's omniscience and his omnipotence that he knew all about David, even when he was an embryo. That is God's view of life and it should be ours as well. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about President Obama's recent speech in Osawatomie, Kansas, and the broader topic of the welfare state. Last Tuesday, the 6th of December, President Obama delivered an important speech in Osawatomie, Kansas, site of the famous 1910 Teddy Roosevelt speech. Obama's speech echoed a 21st century populism, blaming the rich for the economic situation of the nation 
and calling on the nation to reject the Republican Party's position and thereby embrace his. The economic situation of the United States, he basically argues, is not due to his policies, but to the rich, which the Republican Party represents. His speech reflected the imagery of the Occupy Wall Street movement, the 99% versus the 1%. The president stands with the middle class, he says, and his policies are best suited to care for the needs of the middle class. Well, in this perspective, I hope to not so much evaluate his speech, but focus on the much larger issue of the role of the welfare state in our lives, with all of its entitlement programs and the growing dependency on this state which is resulting. Is there a connection, then, between the situation in Europe and Obama's vision for the United States? So let me address all of those questions in this perspective. First of all, the crisis in Europe is not really about the euro and the currency structure of the European Union. It is really about the welfare state. The expansion of the state was one of the great transformations of 20th century Europe. At the beginning of that century, public spending in Europe was virtually non-existent. But then the wealthy nations of Europe adopted programs for education, health care, unemployment insurance, old age assistance, public housing, and even income redistribution. The United States, during the administrations of FDR and LBJ, joined this transformation. The economist Robert Samuelson reports on the statistics of this transformation. In 1870, all government spending was 7.3% of national income in the United States, 9.4% in Britain, 10% in Germany, 12.6% in France. By 2007, the figures were 36.6% for the United States, 44.6% for Britain, 43.9% for Germany, and 52.6% for France. Military costs once dominated budgets. Social spending dominates budgets today. As even the financial novice knows, two factors are necessary for the expansion of the welfare state to work, favorable economics and demographics. Another way of saying it, rapid economic growth to pay for the benefits and young populations to support the old. But as everyone also now knows, neither of these current factors obtain. The rapid and expansive growth of the economies of Western Europe and the United States has slowed significantly, about 2.1% on average. Demographics are in crisis, with the 65-plus age level in our populations growing at exponential rates and birth rates dropping precipitously in some nations of Western Europe. And there are simply not enough young workers, therefore, to support the older population, 
with Social Security and health care programs like Medicare, for example. In the United States, the great expansion of the welfare state occurred in the 1960s and 1970s with the creation of Medicare, Medicaid, and the food stamp program. In 1960, Samuelson reports, 26% of federal spending represented payments to individuals. In 2010, that figure is 66%. Economic growth in the United States has settled in from 2000 to 2007 to about 2.4% each year on average. By 2050, one in five people in our population will be elderly. Samuelson goes on, the modern welfare state has reached a historic reckoning. Vast populations in Europe and America expect promised benefits and, understandably, resent any hint that they will be cut. Elected politicians respond accordingly. But the resulting inertia poses an economic threat, one already being realized in Europe. As deficits or taxes rise, the risk is that economic stability will increase, growth will decline, or both. Paying promised benefits becomes thereby much more difficult. The only other option is austerity. And that is what some of the European nations, like Greece and Britain, are now facing. The paradox is that the welfare state, designed to improve security and dampen social conflicts, now looms in both Europe and the United States as an engine for insecurity, conflict, and disappointment. Facing the hard questions of finding a sustainable balance between individual protections and better economic growth, the Europeans have spent years dawdling. And the parallel with our situation in the United States is all too obvious. We have not gotten a point where there's a balance between individual protection and better economic growth. Let me address a second issue very closely connected in this perspective on Obama's vision and the welfare state. During his first term of president, President Obama has largely ignored the systemic problems of the welfare state in the United States. Indeed, he sponsored a massive stimulus package that added nearly $1 trillion to the national debt. His reorganization of the health care system last summer created an entirely new entitlement program in a nation already hemorrhaging from unsustainable entitlements. That act alone has added an enormous amount of uncertainty into an already stagnant economy. In addition, the president completely ignored the profoundly sensible recommendations of his own Deficit Reduction Commission, the Simpson-Bowles Commission. Further, he has ignored recommendations as well for a complete and fundamental reform of the corrosive and corrupted tax code that misdirects capital and promotes unfairness. Following these recommendations alone, which he ignored, 
But following these recommendations alone would have stabilized the economy of the United States and benefited the middle class far more than anything he intimated in his Osawatomi speech. If you really want to see the effect of bad government policy on the character of a nation, simply look at what has happened in Greece. There you see civil servants who are victimizers behaving like victims. The Greek government and its policies have made them what they are. We are seeing the same thing occurring in Italy and to some extent in Spain. I would not be surprised to see similar things occurring in the United States in 2012. Instead of leading, our president has been coddling the middle class with the focus of blame the rich. Nothing could be further from the truth. The systemic problems of the United States are due to our welfare state, which he has actually expanded quite incredibly. He is presiding over an ugly situation, creating greater dependency of U.S. citizens on its own government. What is occurring in Greece will soon occur in the United States. It is really quite a sad thing to observe. But in the final analysis, we are perhaps getting the leaders we actually deserve as a nation. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the dark side of human nature. We live in a curious culture, don't we? Scandals abound. The Penn State mess surrounding Jerry Sandusky. Bernie Madoff of a few years ago. The Wall Street follies that produced the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Pedophilia in the Roman Catholic Church. And multiple scandals among our political leaders. I choose to not even name these individuals. But what we seem to ignore as a culture is that we all have the same problem. The Bible calls it sin. Many of our acts and activities are not as scandalous as these examples I just cited, but we are really not that good. As a matter of fact, we seem to be masterfully good at self-deception. We inflate our own personal virtues while we are quite quick to sit in judgment of others who have failed. We criticize others, like the Sanduskies and the Roman Catholic priests, but we refuse to hold the same mirror we use to evaluate them up to our own lives. In some ways, we have become a nation of victims. The columnist David Brooks recently, and I believe quite eloquently, summarized the situation in American culture. Quote, In centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this fundamental weakness. He doesn't call it that. I'm calling it sin. These systems emphasized that sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves, he goes on. Life was seen as an inner struggle against the selfish forces inside. These vocabularies made people aware of how their weaknesses manifested themselves and how to exercise discipline over them. 
These systems gave people categories with which to process savagery and scripts to follow when they confronted it. They helped people make moral judgments and held people responsible. We live in a society today that is oriented instead around our inner wonderfulness. They are his words. One of the cliches that you used to hear, I heard it many, many times during my life, was when you saw personal failure, people would often say, oh my, there, but for the grace of God go I. I haven't heard that much anymore. God's not in the picture much anymore in our culture, and that's, of course, an understatement. Furthermore, it seems in our culture that if you have a problem, if you have a failure, it's really someone else's fault, not my fault. The problem of humanity is that we do have a dark side, and we are capable of horrific and despicable actions. Our fundamental problem is not political. No law is going to solve the dark side of the human condition. It's not social. Just putting people in a different surrounding is not going to solve the sinful condition of humanity. It's spiritual. And that fundamental solution is in the person of Jesus Christ, indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. He cleanses the dark side. He declares us righteous when we place our faith in him and his finished work on Calvary's cross and the resurrection. There is no other solution to the dark side of the human condition. Dear people, and I hope you understand the spirit in which I utter these words. As reprehensible as it might seem, all of us are capable of doing the things that we lament and criticize and sit in judgment about. All of us are capable of being Jerry Sanduskis. Maybe not specifically in the pedophilia accusations, but we're capable of monstrous evil. But it is only in Christ that we find the solution to that potential. The dark side of humanity is kept in check by the presence of righteous people, the church. We are the salt We are the light of the world. We help preserve culture from further deterioration because our light exposes darkness even without saying a word for what it is. It drives us back to that fundamental solution in Jesus. Folks, we are beginning the Christmas season. In a little over a week, the celebrations will begin. So in this Christmas season, May we find the refreshment and renewal for those of us who walk with Christ who have made that decision of faith, and for those who have not, may they come to faith, because it is only in Jesus Christ that you find the solution to the dark side of the human condition. In a very real sense, then, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is the light of the world, as we now are the light of the world by his command. We expose the dark side for what it is, pointing to him, the solution for the dark side of the human condition. He indeed is the reason for the season we call Christmas. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.